Hello and welcome to Managing Risk in Asia and to the second part of our ESG series. I'm Nanette Dodu, a Beijing-based partner at Freshfields and co-head of our China competition practice. ESG is increasingly top of mind for many boards and C-suites, including in Asia. In our first podcast, we looked at board diversity in Hong Kong and the US as examples of how this could inform diversity and corporate governance standards across Asia in the future. In this podcast, we'll discuss how environmental and societal issues are driving change, the risk for companies, and how companies can transform ESG risks into opportunities. Joining me for this discussion are two of my partners, Matt O'Callaghan, Tim Mack, and our special guest, Craig Caterberg. Craig is the Chief Legal and Corporate Affairs Officer for Budweiser APAC, a $45 billion brewer focused on sustainable growth in Asia and one of the largest companies of the Hong Kong stock market. Craig has led large, talented 100-plus teams in various senior management roles while based in the US, China, Europe, and Australia. Craig is currently based in China. Tim is a seasoned litigator and leads our disputes resolution team in Asia. And his practice focuses on regulatory compliance, investigations, and enforcement, often with a cross-border angle. Tim has been advising clients on ESG-related compliance issues. Matt is a financial services expert. He joined Freshfields from Goldman Sachs, where he held roles across Europe and Asia. Matt leads our financial services regulatory team in Asia and co-heads our Asia FinTech digital team. Matt is engaged in the local and regional reform agenda for ESG and has been advising clients on how best to prepare and respond to the developing requirements. Matt, let me begin with you. There's a lot of focus on ESG regulatory issues in the financial services sector. What is driving this focus and can we expect things to evolve to other sectors? Morning, Nanette. Uh, Craig and Tim, good, good to be uh, joining you on this podcast this morning. Maybe just to kick off, financial services companies have sort of two roles. They both act as investors, but they often act as gatekeepers as well. And they have tremendous ability to influence the development and the shaping of ESG initiatives. If I think of financial institutions over the last decade, um, they, they probably haven't been on the right side of public opinion. What you've seen come out of that is this enormous shift in the G aspect of ESG on a lot of the financial services side. And they now have this, this fantastic opportunity to choose what they invest in, what they arrange, but also how they engage with their own people and, and the broader community. And, and all of those have the ability to help them project a, a more positive image. One you know, really good example recently here in the region, that would be coal mining. A lot of economies still largely rely on, on coal-based power, but we've also now seen a growing reluctance across a number of financial institutions to finance or support new coal or coal seam gas operations around the region. If you think about how that came about, that came out about you know, through a number of different initiatives. One is better engagement and understanding their community. We've seen financial institutions recognize that their staff want to better connect with their organization and understand what they're doing, but also that they understand that consumer and community sentiment can change very quickly. 
And so when you see really focused efforts, um, such as what we saw around coal mining, we can see that they're really successful. That sort of plays into the second part of it, which is financial services is ultra competitive. No institution wants to be the outlier in that regard. So we, we have seen a large number of institutions commit to not financing new coal mines. And, and you know, there's now over a hundred of those globally um, that have committed to withdrawing from that part of the market. And I think the third aspect uh, is really regulators. We're starting to see a lot of initiatives in particular a lot of the prudential regulators have looked at balance sheets and they're asking for climate assessments on whether certain investments or assets may become stranded or impaired uh, in the future. And so with those different factors, uh, we have seen a material shift in, in one particular area. That's just a good example of some of the drivers that are pushing towards ESG. The second question you mentioned was whether we can expect things to evolve in other sectors. We're seeing investors increasingly focusing on wanting to put more of their money to work in ESG investments. And so we are going to see a lot of this uh, leak into other sectors. And, and there's a number of reasons as to why financial institutions can affect some of that change. From the financial services side, uh, ESG regulation is really coming together. It's currently fragmented. But there's a number of important initiatives that are starting to bring those threads together. We have the G7 recently recognizing this. Uh, we, we've also got IOSCO bringing all the securities regulators together. Uh, we have the IFRS Foundation looking at ways to create a common taxonomy so we can all talk the same language when we talk about ESG disclosure. I think we're going to see this sort of broader alignment and, and that's going to help corporates to respond in a way that will allow better engagement with investors, but also better engagement with their consumers as well. I think as governments work towards a lot of their net zero commitments at an international level, they're gonna use all of those instruments available. And so they need to make sure they've got the right incentives, penalties where needed, and also the governance measures to, to measure, reduce, and influence that transition. So I think aside from all those capital consequences I talked about before, You've got a growing pool of investors. You've got 79% of investors in Asia-Pac alone have said that they're either going to significantly or moderately increase the allocation to ESG investments. That rises to 90% when you look at the largest institutions. You've got all these new funds that are chasing ESG investments. So it's really important that the disclosures align. I do think government has a really important role to coordinate across borders and to bring some of those threads together. Thanks for that, Matt. Picking up on your point about the industry-wide collaboration, it seems to me that companies will inevitably need to collaborate, including competitors, to meet some of the ambitious ESG goals and standards set by regulation. Companies may also want to collaborate to advocate for higher sustainability goals. But from an antitrust perspective, I think it's important to keep in mind that there is no special treatment under antitrust laws currently for collaborations that pursue sustainability goals. So, so compliance with antitrust laws, even when companies are pursuing sustainability objectives, must remain top of mind. That said, companies can do a lot together without infringing antitrust rules, especially if appropriate safeguards are put in place to prevent anti-competitive conduct. In fact, some of the initiatives I've been seeing recently are competitively neutral or even pro-competitive. Crucially, companies should not coordinate their competitive behavior. So for example, companies should not be agreeing collectively 
to avoid investing in specific companies pursuing unsustainable objectives, or to divest holdings in specific companies also pursuing unsustainable objectives. Decisions will need to be independent. Craig, let me bring you into our conversation. From your perspective, having served in different geographies, how is ESG playing out in Asia compared to elsewhere? And how does a global company navigate the different winds of change and different speeds across Asia? I'll say first off, just thanks for uh, allowing me the opportunity to join uh, you, Matt, and Tim here on the podcast today. There is a lot of passion around ESG, uh, and that comes from individuals such as myself who have a lot of that passion. You know, that comes increasingly from governments, that comes from consumers, uh, that comes from regulators, and that comes from voters or influencers and stakeholders. And those are obviously a lot of different words, but ultimately that means that comes from people. And we sell beer and beverages around Asia Pacific. We have 26,000 employees, and each of those employees has a point of view. And none of those points of view are identical. But what I will say is there is a lot of passion, you know, both from our leadership team, but also from our colleagues around Asia Pacific when it comes to environmental topics, when it comes to social topics, and even when it comes into governance topics. So what do I see when it comes to Asia Pacific? Uh, I see a lot of diversity and I see the future. And what I mean by that is, if you think about the world today, what is the world's passcode to its iPhone, if you think about it from that perspective? The, today, the world's code is 1114, which is a billion people uh, in the Americas, billion people in Europe, billion people in Africa, and four in Asia. So it's very hard to be thinking about what's happening in Asia as kind of a unified area. If you think about 10 years from now, what does the world's passcode look like? It's 1125, billion people in the Americas, billion people in Europe, 2 billion in Africa, and 5 billion in Asia. So if you're thinking about what is ESG and what does Asia look like today, I think you need to be thinking a little bit more about the future. And yes, today, there's certainly a, a lot of uh, opinions on all of these and a lot of energy that you're seeing. But certainly when you're thinking about the future, there's even more of that. Like you cannot talk about the world or the future without talking about Asia. And certainly that's something that we see as a consumer goods company and about how it is that you can provide consumers with what they want. And increasingly we see that consumers care about what their products say when it comes to environmental matters, what they say when it comes to, to social matters. That's something that you've seen for a long time but it is, I'd say, increasingly relevant. Uh, and it's not a single topic, right? ESG certainly covers a lot of different areas. If you think about our business with beer, sustainability is our business because if there's no water, there is no beer. It's pretty much as simple as that. So we need to care about that and we want to do that efficiently. That is good business sense as well. But certainly within the environmental context, uh, it also makes good future business sense, which is what our investors care about, both those who are traditional investors and those that are more on the green investing side. But it is a business necessity to be thinking about the future and what makes your business stronger, not just for the next five years or 10 years, but the next 100 years. And we have beer brands that go back to 
you know, 1215, 1366, uh, with Stella Artois and some others. So we do think about it very long term. Thanks for that, Craig. Tim, Craig talked a little bit about regulators. From your perspective, what are you seeing in terms of what regulators are doing to drive corporate change? It was very interesting hearing Craig explain uh, things from his perspective. That 1114 statistic really puts things into proper perspective. Uh, Facts, as I say, can be very powerful things. Uh, From my perspective as a dispute resolution lawyer and uh, regulatory defence lawyer. I mean, what I've been seeing is that ESG is building momentum in Asia, um, but we're probably not uh, as far along the ESG path uh, in Asia as, say, the US or, or Europe. But, uh, and Craig touched upon this, this point, given Asia's enormous diversity in so many respects, there are some variations in Asia as to how ESG is viewed and how it's addressed. But because of the importance of ESG, we, we have to really take it very, very seriously and regulators are doing that. Now, how are they doing that? Well, they're looking at the bigger picture and, and they're seeing basically that market participants, uh, and, and by that I mean those who operate in the financial markets, are treating this increasingly importantly and, and seriously. But importantly, I think it's really the consumer that's driving things. I think fueled by social media, public perception now plays such a huge part in, in everything. And when we're talking about public perception, things that can affect that, including disclosure, come into the, uh, into the equation. Matt touched on this earlier on. So governmental and regulatory action, I think, are, are increasingly important in driving uh, the ESG agenda and, and pushing ESG efforts forward. We're seeing increasing cooperation across borders, uh, as well as within borders. The cross-border front, Matt touched on this earlier on. Um, and just by way of example, the Hong Kong SFC is, is looking to keep you know, Hong Kong's regulatory approach to ESG quite closely aligned with uh, IOSCO's approach. Uh, because of the strong links between those two organisations. And IOSCO is the International Organisation of Securities Commissions. I talked about public perception. In that regard, And social media clearly plays a really important part. And interestingly, Asia has a fascinating dynamic there because of the huge populations involved. Um, Those huge populations contribute to, obviously, to production and increasingly to, to consumption. We're seeing... Lots of areas in Asia moving from from being developing into becoming much more developed. And therefore, Asian buying power, particularly collective buying power, is enormous. So businesses, I think, need to be aware of the importance of their public perception, their public image and how their customers and other stakeholders uh, view them. But I think for global organisations, thinking about the broader perspective, adopting a broadly consistent approach to ESG, but also an approach that's tailored for local nuances and variations can be very important. And when we're talking about Asia, I think it's fair to say that no one size fits all. Matt, you talked earlier um, about disclosure. So I wonder if you could pick up on that. Disclosure is incredibly important. One of the greatest challenges that all of the regulators have is, is trying to find a way to learn from the lessons and mistakes that were potentially made uh, when we look at a comparable reporting regime that was implemented 10 years ago, and that was for derivative transaction reporting. Things were broadly similar, but the implementation at the national level really meant that interoperability and the comparison uh, across different markets and the ability for regulators to be able to make those comparisons across markets was lost. As we see that development and we see the consultations arising in different markets, it's going to be really important that we try to make sure that we're bringing as much of that together. Coming back to 
Asia is a very large and very diverse pod. There are some positive signs within that. We certainly see the Hong Kong, Singapore, Australian, Japan regulators all working very closely together as with Korea, and where we're seeing a lot of convergence in the way that they're thinking and implementing their framework. We've seen China wanting to engage more broadly. We've seen a number of initiatives where China's engaging on reporting and uh, taxonomies with the European Union, as well as you know, plugging into some of those initiatives here in Asia. So those parts are going to be important, but unless we get back to a common taxonomy and unless we come back to a framework that is going to be truly interoperable, we're never really going to be able to compare the apples with the apples. That's probably the one thing that I think is tremendously important and ties in with what we're trying to achieve and, and how we're going to be able to get there from a regulatory standpoint. The other part is there is this thesis that investing in ESG generates better long-term investments. Uh, that probably still remains um, something that's going to be difficult to compare unless you, know, you, you do have those comparable aspects. Over time, we, we are going to see a, a lot of these global initiatives. It was at the G20 and the G7. The Financial Stability Board works on behalf of the G20 to implement their objectives. We've got the securities regulators working together under IOSCA, which Tim mentioned. Um, so we do have the right international bodies that are working together. It's just making sure that trickles to the national level. But perhaps you know, we can get a different perspective on that. Craig, it'd really be good to hear some practical steps that corporates can take. Yeah, absolutely. No, and Matt, I would say the practical steps in a lot of ways with ESG is not trying to... I don't know what the right expression might be. Eat the whale, not try to boil the ocean, not try to do everything at once. At least what we've found with Bud APAC is that you start with what your business is and what your business is about. And for us, our business is bringing people together for a better world. That is our, our statement and what we're dedicated to. And we do that with beer and with beverages. And I mentioned before about, you know, beer... Uh, you know, is based on water. It's over 90% water. Got some malt and some hops and a few other things added in there, but it's very water dependent is what I would say. And so when we looked at laying out sustainability goals, one of the things we did is we looked at our core business and we said, all right, how is it that we are going to have sustainability goals that make our business stronger and that are relevant? Right, because there's a lot of criticism when it comes to kind of you know greenwashing or rainbow washing or a lot of words and not a lot of actions. And both of those are important, right? You have to have the words, but you need to have the actions. And I would say you might even need the actions before you can go out publicly and saying the words, because you need to be walking the walk before you can be out talking about things. And that's not to say anybody's perfect or anybody's at the end of this. This is a journey. It's an ESG journey that I think everyone in the world is on. And, you know, maybe two or three decades from now, it will be different acronyms. But if you are an optimist and your company is focused on a better world and what's positive in the future, then you're looking to contribute to something that is a better world or that is better than it is today. And for us, that got into four areas specifically, which we embedded within our 2025 sustainability goals. Uh, it got into smart agriculture about where the crops uh, are and how the crops are grown. Uh, so, you know, that's barley and rice and corn and many of the others. It gets into water stewardship about what is the quality of water that we take in and use in our products, which needs to be top quality. 
And then also what's the type of water that we're exiting, if that's going to raise crops, if that's going back into municipal wastewater treatment plants, how does that water interact? Our third out of the sustainability goals really related into to circular packaging about beer comes in bottles and cans for the most part and is transported around in, in cardboard. So that's where we focused as our third. And then the fourth is really on climate action because of course we all live on one planet, the only hospitable planet that we are aware of uh, anywhere. And so that's certainly a important part about what are the different externalities that happen, right? Because it does take energy to produce anything. Any product takes some kind of energy, human labor or, or renewable electricity or coal, like you mentioned before, Matt. Like there's a lot of different areas that come together. And so that energy relates very much into climate action and where we decided to focus our efforts. So that's where we started was our business model and how we could make that as strong as possible for the future, for the next hundred plus years to be able to do that. Uh, and those were the four that we then identified and put metrics to. Uh, and what we are seeing as well is that there's a convergence when it comes to the different standards that financial analysts are using, ESG analysts, and that communities are. Uh, I think even probably five years from now, we'll see more of that convergence uh, because it's very hard to do that across you know, the economy. The world is complex and there is variation, but of course, a lot of what we try to do is simplify that uh, and then be able to lead in areas that we think will make our business better and the world better as well. I'd like to shift focus, litigation risks, commercial risks. My first question is to you, Tim. What are you seeing in this space in Asia over the coming years, and particularly risks that will impact investors and companies and what steps do you think companies can be taking now to ensure that they're best placed to respond to and navigate those risks? A, a rather complicated one. As ESG becomes increasingly important and awareness of ESG issues increases, and in particular, as regulators promulgate more rules focused on ESG uh, and therefore requirements and expectations uh, relating to this area increase, uh, ESG-related risks will invariably increase. Now, the question is, where, where will those risks lie? And I think they can come from a variety of angles. For example, if you're a company and you touted your green credentials, but those credentials are not as strong as you make them out to be, or, for example, you're involved in an ESG issue that because of social media happens to go viral, consumers can vote with their money. Those who provide finance to you can also vote with their money. Activist shareholders who might hold a stake in your company might well look to see what they can do and what pressure they can apply on you. Your share price might go down if you're listed. And all the while, while that's occurring, regulators will be watching uh, and scrutinizing for compliance. Now, going back to the issue of disclosure, and this is particularly pertinent for listed corporations, the increasing regulatory landscape and the increasing number of rules relating to disclosure, I think, brings particular risk there. So for now, uh, and certainly if I talk about Hong Kong, I'd say regulatory risk is probably slightly higher than litigation risk. Um, and that's largely because um, we've, in, in Asia, not really been a very litigious kind of environment and there are all sorts of hurdles for litigants to go through in order to be successful. 
that's for now, but things can change over time, I guess. Now, for regulators, really good corporate disclosure is critical. And what I mean by good corporate disclosure really is uh, accurate, timely, and not misleading disclosure. Uh, And that's always been a high priority. And I have no doubt that going forward, that's going to remain the same. And it's in particular going to be true when talking about uh, ESG-related disclosures and all of its complexities. And that disclosure, whether it relates to an organization's compliance or whether it relates to the organization's ESG credentials, will be scrutinized in broadly similar fashion. If I were to look at how those risks might be mitigated, it's a pretty complex matrix there. So what I would say is it probably pays to think carefully about the component pieces, the various issues and permutations, and then to try and work out a plan. Now, given the complexity around how the the E part of the equation, the SG part of the equation, the G part of the equation interact, and they do interact, that will take a bit of time. So I think making a start and doing something about that now, uh, sooner rather than later, is better than being passive and moving only when pushed. So I guess it's, it's um, by way of analogy, a little bit like dealing with a cyber attack, right? If you only move when you need to, it might well be too late to manage down the risks that you could otherwise uh, mitigate. That's very interesting, Tim. Greg, you've talked about risks, regulatory risk and litigation risk, or potentially litigation risk not being as high up the uh, agenda as regulatory risk. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how uh, a company can actually turn risk into opportunities. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about that, because what I would say, I think there's always that balance, right? Because certainly, uh, if we're talking about the legal profession, a big part of our training and a big part of our jobs is to identify risk and to manage risk. And we need to be able to do that to be successful in our professions. And companies need to be able to do that as they're managing risks. And of course, risks come from, you know, slipping on Legos in the morning, stepping out of bed uh, and driving to to work if you're in a car or subways or there's so many different things, right, that you can think about on the risk side. And that is true, certainly within the regulatory and the legal context and the litigation context as well. And so I think it's right, as you and Tim were mentioning, to be cognizant of the risks and aware of those risks and doing what you can to mitigate those and being proactive about it. Uh, I thought Tim said it very well about just do something. I spend a lot of time with children's books. So I think there's Marvin J. Mooney is the one, which is a classic Dr. Seuss one, but it's just, just go, 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 go. And that's sort of, in a way, what is proactive about managing with risk itself. And frankly, by doing that, I think in a lot of ways, there are then opportunities that come with it also. You know, when we look at a balance sheet, we look at it as, uh, you know, um, all of our profits and loss and the the financial figures that that we would have uh, around all of the different financial statements. But then we look at R&O, right? We have the risks to what our latest estimate is. And then we also have opportunities about what those opportunities are to the latest estimate. And when you think about that in a regulatory context, it is in some ways also trying to predict the future. And of course, that's very hard to do. And you'll be wrong with almost every prediction that you do. But there will be many that you can see kind of mega trends where your probability of being right is slightly higher than your probability of being wrong. And there are then opportunities, whether you're following consumer trends, which is what we do very much, uh, whether you're focused on how regulators are moving and a regulator from 
you know, a New Zealand maybe looking to the UK, the UK maybe looking to Australia. You know, it, regulators are all looking to each other in a lot of ways and thinking about what is our best practices. That's not to say that it will at all be uniform, but there are some areas where you, if you see a certain jurisdiction like a Germany moving ahead in data privacy, and you're seeing that that is something that consumers are calling for, there's a decent chance that those type actions will be mimicked in some form or be adapted to what consumers or to what citizens are, are talking about in a different country. And by being able to see what the world looks like or to be able to predict any of those changes, that's something that I think can be a competitive advantage. And you can then turn it into opportunities because you can see the future slightly ahead of some of the competitors who might not be seeing those trends coming. And potentially you can even shape that discourse about how it is that you are able to take real concerns that people have and turn them into actionable plans, either as a company or as a government or as a regulator, uh, because those decisions are all made through conversations with different people. So understanding that landscape and how people are moving can be an opportunity as well. You certainly can't change trends, but you can get ahead of trends if, and you might be wrong, but you might also be right. And so you have to then weigh the probabilities about what that opportunity would be. That's an interesting point you make, Craig, around the opportunities that you can realize uh, individually. What some clients also tell us is that inevitably cooperation is needed some of the reasons that companies point to is the slow pace of progress from regulators or from government, cost considerations, reasons of scale, which necessitate collective action. And indeed, sometimes individual action may in fact lead to significant first mover disadvantages. Where we see cooperation is often around areas such as committing to minimum standards for manufacturing methods. Uh, or joint advocacy on best practices for meeting sustainability targets, joint research into less polluting technologies, or agreeing to phase out less sustainable but cheaper products and replace them with more sustainable alternatives. Some of these initiatives may lead to negative outcomes, reductions in consumer choice, or short-term price increases, uh, and therefore they do run the risk of falling foul of current competition laws. So in addition to the disclosure requirements that Matt and Tim mentioned, there is focus uh, on antitrust as well. I think competition authorities understand this, and some of them, such as a Dutch competition authority, are developing guidance to help companies assess individual and collective actions to promote rather than to hinder sustainability initiatives. In Asia, we have yet to see the kind of detailed guidance coming out of Europe. The competition authorities in this region are certainly live to this and are certainly thinking about the intersection between competition and sustainability and the role that competition law can play to promote sustainability. We can expect guidance to emerge as competition authorities gain more experience in this area. If you take the COVID pandemic, a number of competition authorities such as China, India, Hong Kong, Singapore, introduced advisories indicating where the antitrust rules can be relaxed whilst remaining pretty tough on certain forms of conduct to help manage the health crisis. In the Philippines, for example, in the area of merger control, jurisdictional thresholds were significantly increased 
and the authority's power to conduct ex officio investigations into mergers suspended. So what you see, I think, in Asia is the sort of convergence, companies undertaking individual action, cooperation, governments and regulators also getting involved in ESG initiatives. Matt, from your perspective, what do you see as some of the drivers do you think companies should be wary of as they engage in more ESG-related initiatives? I think that guidance on collective actions is going to be really important. If I take that collective action and that that need for change and I bring it back to, to Craig's comments about making sure you're prepared, it's going to be really important for, for our clients to, to engage and consider consultations because that is the roadmap of how things are going to develop. And for a lot of global businesses, they need to ensure there's consistency. So understanding what's happening in Germany uh, and how that's going to relate to what's happening here in Hong Kong or what's happening in Australia, you want to align those as much as possible. So by engaging early and understanding those nuances and differences, it does give you an opportunity to help shape uh, and ensure that there is a consistency Uh, but also to look at those opportunities to collaborate and make sure that you can do that in a way, be that through industry groups or be that through arrangements that the competition regulators can can give some leniency around to ensure that, you know, that the factors that need to go into, uh, you know, to this new regulatory regime are, are well thought through and consistent. But I think aside from those, in terms of what do our clients need to be aware of, they need to be thinking through those social issues and the change dynamics and how quickly they can translate into impacts on share price or the ability to raise capital or the the ability to be able to deal with their assets or to manage their business effectively. Those disruptions can have a very swift impact um, and it might not impact you immediately in respect of your client base, but it might also impact your ability to deal with certain types of counterparties that raises your, um, your cost of business. I think being aware of the disclosure requirements and being really wary about greenwashing, Craig gave some great examples of that earlier, really important as well. You need to understand that landscape in order to be able to operate effectively within it. And that applies to the investments that are being made as well. You need to have a clear plan on how you're going to apply your particular ESG factors to any investments that you're making. And I think if you position yourself right, you can translate all those risks into opportunities everyone's going to be operating in the same environment. So yes, they may be difficult and yes, there may be transitional issues, but everyone's in the same boat. And so it's, it's about identifying where you can convert those. I'd like to end on that positive note. I'd also like to thank you, Matt, uh, Craig and Tim for joining this session. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining this discussion on the E and the S ESG. Please do listen to our first podcast in our ESG series where we discuss the G in ESG. We look forward to welcoming you to our next podcast in our Managing Risk in Asia series.